Starting Saturday, March 21st through Sunday, March 29th, supporters from all over the nation will run or walk 3.1 miles to make a difference for rare disease. The first annual Denim Dash 5K Run Walk for Rare Disease is a virtual race created by Orphan Drug Solutions and Global Genes. You've got the flexibility to participate wherever and whenever is most convenient for you. Run or walk any time between March 21st and March 29th and raise awareness and funds to support families affected by rare disease. Register today and get your race packet at givehope.globalgenes.org forward slash denim 5k. It's that easy. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. World Rare Disease Day, an annual observance held on the last day of February, seeks to raise awareness for rare diseases. On that day, hundreds of patient organizations from more than 80 countries will be participating in activities to call attention to thousands of ailments, many of which are without treatments or even names. We spoke to Hudson Freeze, director of the Human Genetics Program at Sanford Burnham Medical Research Institute, about World Rare Disease Day, the importance of raising awareness, and how research into rare diseases can shed light into more common ailments. Hud, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Danny. It's good to be here. Uh, We're going to talk about World Rare Disease Day, the event you're organizing as part of that this year, and your own research into rare disease. But for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with it, perhaps you can explain what World Rare Disease Day is, how it came about, and, and what it's trying to do. Sure. Um, hey, do you know you know anyone with cancer? Sure. Well, you know, most people do. Um, touches almost everybody's life. You know, but there are more patients in the world, in the U.S., who have a rare disorder than there are cancer patients and AIDS patients. I mean, so think about that. And how many people really know someone who has a rare disease? It's, it's kind of unusual that we think about it. You know, maybe you know somebody who has a, a strange condition or something like this. And rare diseases are and have not been well known, but in 2008, there was a concerted movement to establish an International Rare Disease Day. And that was the last day of February, the rarest day of the year, every four years. So a rare disease is, is designated as having less than 200,000 patients in the U.S. In Europe, it's less than 2,000 patients. But the the issue is the awareness of these disorders, most of which are genetic disorders, and and the majority of people who are affected are children. And so there was not a great awareness of this. And so this was the effort to try to sort of unify the world in thinking about rare disorders and how frequent they really are because there were... 6,000 different rare diseases, many of which actually don't have a diagnosis. So this is the onslaught to try to 
change that perspective. Well, you've been involved in rare disease research for some 35 years. How has awareness about rare diseases changed during that time? Well, I think it's it's improved, and I think uh, a lot to the credit of the International Rare Disease Day, but also because different stakeholders have actually been able to see the value of this. For instance, um, I'm a scientist, and so from the scientific standpoint, um, we realize that a key to discovery of the basic scientific principles is really based in finding out what doesn't work right. So more scientists have have begun to embrace that. And I think it's it's certainly helped that celebrities uh, will will take up the banner and talk about selected rare diseases that they feel passionate about and will sometimes start foundations. So that's certainly been helpful. Physicians now are getting more tools to be able to deal with these rare disorders. And so there is renewed enthusiasm for being able to do things. And, you know, I think one of the most important things that's come along is that families now can be connected. The Internet, social networking, all of these things place physicians, scientists, information really at the fingertips of, of parents and, and patients, and they can go out there and they can look for these things. And so that has been, uh, in a, you know, really encouraging. There's a new book out by Eric Topol uh, called The the Patient Will See You Now. And I think um, it, it's very worthwhile read, but basically it says we're all connected, and the new way of having medicine done is going to have an empowered patient base and I and I see that in rare diseases because people are very motivated to do things. Increasing awareness is important for a number of reasons. For one, it helps create interest in advancing and funding research. We're at a time right now when biomedical research funding in the United States has been contracting in real terms. How is rare disease research faring, and, and how successful has this area been at forging new types of funding? Is there a need to think about new ways to fund this work? Sure. Uh, I think the, the thing to start off, I, I guess, is a fundamental principle, is to realize that in the United States, the funding from the National Institutes of Health, which is the uh, major government agency that funds practically all medical research in the U.S., that funding in real spendable dollars has decreased almost 25% in the last 10 years. That means fewer people are being funded with less money to do less work. And since you never know where breakthroughs in science will come from, uh, what field is actually going to make some breakthrough that will have untold rewards for completely different fields? The undermining of fundamental research is a problem. So, on the other hand, there have been some good developments, I think, that are really important to point out. For instance, the National Institutes of Health has also developed this uh, program it calls the Undiagnosed Disease Program, where they take cases, they're sort of like being uh, Dr. House, taking cases that nobody else could figure out, and they're coming up with solutions to this. That started off as a, a program a number of years ago with a very small amount of, of funding, and now, because of its great success, it has garnered uh, the attention of 
larger funding operations within the government. So that's good. There's an office of um, uh, rare disease research that has also uh, got more traction. And pharmaceutical companies are starting to understand that there are there's actually some money to be made in dealing with rare diseases. In the past, it had been a situation where uh, if, unless it's a blockbuster drug that rakes in billions, there wasn't interest. But that's changing. So that's that's a very positive uh, feature. And I think the other thing that's uh, improved is the recognition, and again, pr- probably because of uh, social networking and media and availability uh, of, of reaching scientists and physicians, is that there has been some greater philanthropy that's taken place. And and our lab has been very, very fortunate to, to benefit from that. But I really think as time goes forward now, there will be many, many new diseases that uh, will be discovered. And in, in that instance, uh, a motivated parent, a patient themselves, can look onto the Internet, find out which scientists are doing work, and our lab is just a click away. Anybody can reach us. And so that is going to both empower scientists, but what it says is we're going to need, if we're going to investigate these disorders, we're going to need more funds to be able to do it in an orderly, scientific way that may result in production of therapies, maybe in the near, maybe in the longer-term future. One of the other benefits of raising awareness, I'd argue, is that it, it helps patients and doctors think about rare diseases when searching for a diagnosis. How difficult is the process of diagnosis for rare disease, and are there things being done that can accelerate that process? Sure. Um, The diagnosis of rare diseases uh, can sometimes be very, very slow. Um, Families will take years, if not decades, to come up with a diagnosis. Um, There was recently an article that I had some contact with uh, in The New Yorker. It was called One of a Kind. And it tells about one family's search for what was wrong with their child. And by accessing social networks, by doing blog posts, and contacting scientists, they were able to not only find the diagnosis for their own child, but then also to spread out and say there have to be more kids with this. And even though that was only done about a year ago, We've already found an additional 20, 22 patients, and that's really phenomenal, but it shows the kinds of things that can be done when there are motivated people who are reaching out uh, to do that. That said, they still had a multi-year experience of looking for a diagnosis, and now I think things are getting better, and they're going to change, and part of that is, as I had mentioned, um, most of these disorders are genetic in nature. And so there is a development of the ability to do genetic sequencing of a person's um, genetic components. They're all their genes, and they're, it's called exomes or genomes. The important thing is you can have a much better chance of seeing what the possibilities are for diseases that may be caused by genetic mutations. The challenge out of that is to show that those particular mutations are actually the cause. 
And that takes not predictions, not estimates, but it takes real on-the-ground science and in-the-lab science to really prove that many of these deficiencies really are the cause of a disorder. And that takes, um, can I say, some concerted effort. Now, part of what's enabled this is that there are that the cost of doing exome or genome sequencing has fallen enormously in the past, even in the past several years. And so doing it for $1,000 is not unrealistic. Interpreting that, putting it into a context, knowing that this is the cause, that's still a, a, a bit more involved, but we're getting better at it. And I think one of the things that can help is if more people are able to have their exomes and genome sequenced. And I think that's probably going to come on and save a lot of money in the long run in diagnostics because instead of doing uh, 50 other tests, which may rack up, you know, very large bills in trying to do diagnosis, you can at least look at the genetics and begin to home in on something. Uh, you research a process known as glycosylation, a group of inherited diseases called congenital disorders of glycosylation. Right. What is glycosylation? How big a group of diseases does this represent? And how do these diseases manifest themselves? Well, these are, are uh, a set of diseases that until, oh, I suppose about 20 years ago, were basically unknown. Uh, the first one was identified in 1980. And then there was a long lag. But thanks to, as I was saying, some of this genomic sequence, now there were well over 100 disorders that fall into this category. So what is it? What's glycosylation? Well, glycosylation is a metabolic process, in other words, we all do it, of adding sugar chains onto uh, proteins in the cells. And every cell does this. You can't get along in the total absence of glycosylation. Every cell on Earth, in fact, does glycosylation. But sometimes there are mutations in these very complicated pathways that will result in a deficiency in some cell types in some organs that cause, that manifest as problems. And so what are those problems? Uh, oftentimes they're neurological disorders, uh, seizures, failure to thrive, kids don't grow, they have abnormal bones, they are hypotonic. In other words, they're kind of floppy. They have intellectual disability. Um, they will also have sometimes uh, diabetes, well, not diabetes-like symptoms, but sugar deficiency syndromes. They will have coagulopathy, which means their blood proteins don't uh, coagulate in the right way. Uh, they can become jaundiced. There are a number of different features, and they're so broad, and even within a particular disease, uh, this can be uh, an enormous clinical spectrum. So the physician, in trying to diagnose these disorders, doesn't walk in and say, ah, I can tell what that is. I've seen 100 like this. It's not like that. So it requires genetic and biochemical analysis, and now there are fairly simple tests that will allow you to at least begin to home in on some of these disorders. And so we've been studying these since about 1995, and I was able to do this because I had a background in glycobiology, uh, studying, of all things, an organism called a slime mold. And I looked at uh, genetic deficiencies 
of glycosylation in slime mold. And it turned out that some of those things mimicked what we can see in the cells from patients. And what was most remarkable is that we were able to actually treat um, the cells from some of these patients by giving them a simple sugar. And then the most amazing part is that we were actually able to treat patients by giving them a simple sugar. For World Rare Disease Day, you've put together a day-long symposium on how simple sugars can be used to treat patients not only with rare diseases, but impact aging, immune function, and, and diabetes. How well understood is the use of these sugars and, and their potential mechanism of action? Well, you hit on exactly the right question and the reason we're having this symposium. In most cases, the mechanism is unknown. And for the disease that, that we studied and were able to treat with this simple sugar called mannose, and you know, by the way, there are a number of sugars besides glucose that most people will know about. There are a number of different sugars that go in to make up sugar chains on proteins. And those include things like mannose, galactose, fucose, and acetylglucosamine, and acetylgalactosamine. So uh, those terms may not mean anything, but they're simple sugars. And we can derive some of them, sometimes small amounts from our diets. But in this case, the patients that we were working with uh, were not able to turn glucose into mannose, but we were able to give them just a sugar supplement, just a drink that reversed nearly all of their symptoms. And so then the question was why? And at the time, we didn't know it, and we didn't understand the mechanism. And not long after that, we figured out what the genetic deficiency was, and then the rationale for giving mannose all made sense. We did this for another patient who had a deficiency in making fucose. So we were able to give that patient fucose. And that patient, in certain ways, recovered. Not completely, but in certain features, recovered. So there are studies out there now suggesting that for very specific genetic disorders, you can give certain sugars, and that may help in improving the symptoms. And so what we've done for the Rare Disease Day is to pull together people who are doing clinical trials with these simple sugars, treating some patients. There are others who are just about to start on clinical trials for things like, if, if you can believe this, multiple sclerosis. And there's good understanding of the basic science that might be underlying this. There's also the possibility of doing some of this for things like diabetes. And again, some of the science is known, but not a lot of it. And our hope is to expose people who would come to this meeting to things they never thought about before, glycosylation in ways they never considered possible or even relevant. And in fact, we're even finding that some of these sugars may affect aging. Now, admittedly, it's in worms, but what are the implications that we may be able to derive from understanding things in simple systems, simple sugars that have effects on patients with rare disease, might this also apply to common disorders? And the answer, and you get exactly the right question, is that the mechanisms of most of these things are completely unknown. So this is a new frontier. This is a way we can go forward.
Given this potential link between rare diseases and things such as autoimmune disorders or, and cancer, does it suggest that rare diseases provide us a way to understand more common diseases? Yeah, Rosetta Stone. Remember, I, I mentioned that scientists use what goes wrong to understand how to make that right in the, the fundamental process. And I see that in exactly this situation with rare diseases. We will be the guidepost for enabling people to think about this in different ways. And sometimes it's a, uh, a surprising experiment that somebody tries just on a lark, and it works. And it's something that they're studying that they didn't think had a connection to glycosylation. But as understanding moves along, we can see that there are impacts in these more common disorders. And so I would say, again, you know, it's the Rosetta Stone. The rare diseases are going to point the way. And uh, since glycobiology in general is not a well-known field, um, neuroscience, if you have a meeting of neuroscientists, you'll have 20,000 people coming uh, if you bring all the glycobiologists in the world together, you've got uh, under 500. So this has been uh, not as much appreciated, but one of my purposes here is to have people appreciate glycobiology, the role of simple sugars, the potential, and also say this is what rare diseases can lead us into. If you're interested in attending the 6th Annual Rare Disease Day Symposium, Treating Disease with Sugars, it'll be held from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Friday, February 27th, and 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Saturday, February 28th, at Sanford Burnham at 10905 Road to the Cure in La Jolla. Registration's free, and more information, including the program, can be found on the Sanford Burnham website. Dr. Hudson Fries, Director of the Human Genetics Program at Sanford Burdham Medical Research Institute. Hud, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Danny. It was a real pleasure. A few housekeeping notes. Over on our sister podcast, The Bio Report, tune in to hear Jacob Pleath, senior reporter for EP Vantage, discuss CAR T cell therapies, a new class of cancer immunotherapies, and whether investor enthusiasm in the companies developing these treatments should be tempered by the risks they face. Then next week on Rarecast, hear Andrew Sue, associate professor in the Department of Molecular and Experimental Medicine at the Scripps Research Institute, discuss his efforts to accelerate drug development through his Mark to Cure crowdsourcing project, which seeks to enlist citizen scientists to pour through biomedical journals to help researchers find connections and identify discoveries in one area that may shed light on another. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.